the voice of ESG. Hello everybody, welcome to the voice of ESG with today a somewhat different topic we are going to discuss because the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, exists five years. Time for a party, right? Yay! (laughs) And therefore I have invited two wonderful women in front of me who are absolutely experts on this topic and we are going to delve a little bit deeper into this topic but first, a small introduction, and let me start with our guest, Kimberly Friesen. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Very happy to be here. Uh, I'm Kimberly Friesen. I'm a privacy lawyer at The Data Lawyers. We are a boutique law firm based in Rotterdam and Amsterdam. And we uh, help clients with, uh, for example, privacy compliance with the GDPR, uh, multinationals in all kinds of sectors, but also medium-sized firms all over the world. Thank you, and well, very welcome here. Thank you. We go to my colleague, Nikki Goes. Nikki? Thank you, thank you. Um, Nikki Goes, working for over six years with RSM now. Uh, as a consultant, I uh, have a strong focus on financial supervision laws and anti-money laundering compliance, but also GDPR, the interesting topic that uh, we are discussing here uh, today. And me, myself, Gemma Diamond, uh, manager, Emerging Technologies, Um, I specialize in all kinds of uh, law and technology related topics in which we help international clients with their questions. And today is GDPR party day, like mentioned. I can remember when I was studying at the university, we didn't have a GDPR yet. I I think it was called Directive 9846 by heart. And out of sudden, this GDPR monster came and I can remember working at a lawyer's office together with Kimberly back in the days. 25th of May 2018 was doomsday. Everyone has to be prepared and if you were not compliant, you would get these big fines of 4% worldwide turnover, etc. I can remember those days very well. Now, five years later, we are going to discuss if it's actually true what happened. Did did all these uh, ideas, did all these weird suggestions, did they come true? So, uh, one way or the other, uh, we saw that the GDPR had a significant impact on organizations. Data subjects came into existence out of sudden. Data subject rights, uh, international transfer of data. And after five years, we can say quite a lot has happened. So let me start with a question to uh, Nikki. What have been some of the most notable uh, regulatory developments or updates to the GDPR over the past five years? Could you tell a bit more about that? Yeah, well, of course, I uh, think a lot has happened over the last uh, five years when it comes to GDPR. But one of the uh, most outstanding ones is, uh, I think, the SRAMS 2 ruling, which had a lot of impact, especially on international active organizations. Because um, to give a short recap, um, in July 2020, the European Court of Justice ruled that the U.S. privacy shield was no longer applicable. Uh, meaning that international data transfers to the U.S. are yeah, no longer uh, under GDPR, not longer compliant with GDPR. Uh, so for yeah, companies who would like to transfer personal data to the U.S. from the EU, um, they have to undertake additional steps to do it compliant with GDPR, uh, which means that companies sh- should, for example, implement SECs or perform a data uh, transfer impact assessments. Uh, so you can imagine that has a lot of impact on organizations which were transferring personal data uh, to the U.S. on a large scale, which also impacts, of course, um, doing business with the U.S. You mentioned SES. I know what it is, but 
standard contractual clauses. Um, the SECs, yes. Could you elaborate a bit more on that? Um, yeah, that for specific uh, data transfers, um, yeah, specific agreements has to be made uh, where agreements are made on how the data is being protected, especially with the uh, company within the within the US. So the additional safeguards that the company uh, takes to make sure that the way the data is being processed in the US is uh, being compliant with the uh, European data privacy rules, the GDPR. And I think maybe to add, the the good news is, I think, that of course now companies cannot rely on the privacy shield because it's no longer valid. But I think the good news for this year is that the European Commission is working on a new, well, kind of adequacy decision. And uh, I believe the European Commission is hopeful that this will be finalized this summer. However, it's already May, so, well, let's see. Um and it also means if it enters into force this year, this, the, the, the United States still need to implement all the promises they made. So it's unclear yet when companies can actually rely on it again as a transfer mechanism, but it's in the making. So that's good news, I think. Okay, thank you. And uh, from your practice, from your own law, law practice, what, what are the most used uh, ways of transferring data outside the EU you have noticed? Yeah, so... If you are lucky, there is an adequacy decision published by the European Commission. If not, most companies use the standard contractual clauses um, and the bigger uh, companies do have uh, BCR, so the binding corporate rules that are approved by a supervisory authority. But most companies rely on the standard contractual clauses. And if there's not an adequacy decision, you also need, as Nikki already mentioned, uh, to perform a transfer impact assessment. Are all these companies actually using these mechanisms or are most of them still just transferring data outside the EU without actually having some safeguards in place? I think um, in this context, it's interesting to mention uh, everything that has happened in the context of Google Analytics uh, because this made a lot of companies focus on these transfers and worrying about these transfers and wanting to be compliant because all these supervisory authorities were focusing on uh, Google Analytics. And this actually happened right after the European Court of Justice case has published in 2020. Uh, the, the organization None of Your Business, NOIB, uh, filed 101 complaints all over Europe with respect to international transfers and specifically in the context of uh, Google Analytics and this uh, every supervisory authority actually has to respond to a complaint so they had to say something about whether the use of Google Analytics and the international transfers in that context are compliant and what we saw is that some supervisory authorities provided some clear guidance uh, some strict guidance but clear guidance uh, saying that it's prohibited to use it um, and other supervisory authorities for example the Dutch Data Protection Authority were more vague uh, didn't really provide a lot of guidance. So I think, to come back to your question, when this all started, organizations were really motivated to be compliant. However, it's not always clear for organizations how they should be compliant, especially when the supervisory authorities are not providing clear guidance. That's actually the same what I see with uh, our clients. Uh, we serve a lot of uh, Chinese clients, a lot of US clients, but still... They don't directly think about these kind of safeguards which has, have to be taken in advance uh, before you actually transfer uh, personal data, but more uh, more important, sen uh, sensitive personal data, which is also just sent around uh, to the US, uh, but also mainly to China. 
So we, what I see is there's an uprise in sudden GDPR questions because we see more and more Asian companies slowly go, coming towards uh, Europe mainland. So the GDPR is quite a new uh, topic for them and uh, a good way to help them uh, with uh, having uh, transfer data in a compliant manner. So th- that is what I have noticed in my own practice and I'm happy to help them, of course. I want to continue, actually, with another question, more or less uh, the same question, uh, what we have discussed before. I'm, I'm quite curious about what we see uh, with uh, with the authorities, with the data protection authorities, right? So we are now five years into implementation. Um, we have seen quite some uh, significant fines. I want to zoom in a little bit more into that. Let's say, Kimberly, last five years. Yeah. So I think uh, what you already mentioned when we were working together, when the GDPR was introduced, all companies were in a hurry. We have to be compliant before May 2018. Uh, we have a lot. Of, we had a lot of work to do. And then uh, companies started realizing, okay, this is not just uh, one time. Uh, project we had. This is an ongoing process to be GDPR compliant. And uh, one of the reasons why organizations started to worry about the implementation of the GDPR was, of course, because of the enforcement and because of the high fines. And what we see uh, in that regard is that uh, a lot of big companies uh, that you would expect have received fines, uh, the big tech Silicon Valley companies. However, what I think is extremely important is that not only those big companies are being fined, but also the smaller companies, but also the government, uh, political organizations. And in the Netherlands, we even saw a small dentist practice that received a fine for not securing their website accurately. And at first I was thinking, why, why, do, why do you focus on a small dentist practice? But of course, it's important for all organizations to realize that they need to comply with the GDPR and that it's uh, important and that uh, enforcement actions can also take place with respect to the smaller or the less prominent big Silicon Valley companies. That's funny that you say that because uh, in preparation for this podcast, uh, we also made a dashboard with all the uh, fines and enforcement actions taken by authorities. And while scrolling through the data, I saw, I saw a company was selling kebab, <laughs> who got fined <laughs> because they were non-compliant with GDPR. Interesting. So yeah, it's not exactly what you said. It's not only the Silicon Valley companies, yeah. not only uh, the big uh, uh, hotels and tech companies, but also the kebabs are uh, in the corner of the street. <laughs> um, which data protection authority you think is the uh, the, the the teacher? in front of the class. I have an idea, um, but I'm not sure. Well, we have, of course, the ICO, mm-hmm. but the Which UK is from? left. Exactly. They, they are from, they are uh, the uh, supervisory authority in the UK, but of course they left the EU. I think they still provide interesting guidance, but it's maybe a little bit less relevant now. Uh, then we have the French uh, authorities, the CNIL, I think that's a very important one. And uh, I think the German supervisory authorities, they have many of them, but their guidance is very detailed. Uh, and I think that helps or could help uh, organizations. Interesting, yeah. The CNIL or the CNIL, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, is very active also with the latest technological developments. Uh, yesterday I read they were also published uh, quite a, a long roadmap uh, regarding AI and generative AI 
and in what way that it will impact privacy and data protection. So they're quite on the ball and they're quite on uh, top of it. On top of it, uh, busy with these kind of topics. What I was also thinking was Ireland, right? I think Schrems was because of the location of the big firms in Ireland. Exactly because yeah. the, I think the I'm not sure if I can mention companies, but let's say Amazon <laughs> and <laughs> Facebook. I think the the fines were given by the Irish uh, Data Protection Authority. Yeah, but I think that's because they need to, and not because they are providing the most clear guidance besides. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. I always thought it was Ireland which was the the bad teacher in front of the class. And uh, the tech companies were the pupils who didn't do their homework. Okay, let's continue. Nikki, of course you are an AML expert. Yes. And um, perhaps one thinks AML privacy. So I'm curious, have there been any legal challenges or maybe court cases related to the GDPR? Yeah, yeah, definitely. For example, under the AML regulations, uh, there has been a new requirement when it comes to registering the UBOs of companies uh, within a central register, which is accessible um, to the public, actually. And there has been uh, a case here in the Netherlands, but also on European level, the Sovim case in Luxembourg. And the court there has ruled um, just because the register was available towards the public and a lot of uh, personal data when it comes to names of the UBOs of certain companies have been uh, registered uh, therein. A lot of people can see who is behind a company and what is their name. But, but hold on, what is a UBO? Uh, ultimate beneficent owner okay. of a company. Aha, uh-huh. clear. And it's required for financial institutions to obtain this information under the AMLD um, requirements. And um, because it's a violation of um, the personal data being accessible towards the public, the European Court of Justice has ruled that it's not a yeah, violation that can be justified because of uh, the legal obligations of those financial institutions. So that has quite some impact because it means it will be more difficult for financial institutions to obtain certain information on the clients that they um, are performing the client investigation on because they cannot easily access the UBO information. So that also shows that the GDPR has impact on a broader scale. So it also impacts financial uh, institutions. And here in the Netherlands, the reaction of the minister was uh, to immediately terminate the access to the public of the uh, UBO register. But what we see in practice is that it already impacts the financial institutions because yeah, questions arise. Okay, how can I verify um, that indeed this person is the UBO of the company that I'm performing the client investigation on? Um, so and and, in, and these final uh, financial institutions, what ways are they now trying to uh, get this data from, or are they just doing it in a non-compliant manner, the same way as they did before? Well, um, of course, you're in direct contact with your client, so it, it it the first step in every every way is to ask your client for the information, and you can always verify it by shareholders' registers. But it's also uh, incorporated in the law to verify the information that you obtain from your client 
of who is their UBO uh, with the information that's uh, accessible within the public registers. So uh, that as a fact is not possible anymore uh, for now. Um, there have been uh, some publications um, that the register will be made available again, uh, but at least for the financial institutions who has to obtain this information because of their legal obligations under the uh, anti-money laundering compliance uh, regulations. But yeah, you can see it's a thin line. Okay, interesting. I never thought about it that way, but uh, you can see the spillover effects of uh, a regulation who started as a standalone data protection regulation, which is now also slowly moving, spilling over to other uh, sectors and other branches, let's put it that way. Um, you can also see the link uh, between GDPR uh, with another aspect, that's the Joint Transaction Monitoring Legislative Bills, uh, which have published have been published a couple of years ago, um, because it means that uh, banks within the Netherlands, but also uh, within the European Union, will be able to exchange information on their uh, clients about the transactions of their clients more easily. So they have a centralized way of transaction monitoring, which is also one of the requirements under the uh, anti-money laundering uh, regulations. But that means that um, these banks will get more information, also transfer more information to other banks. And uh, one of the other aspects of this legislative bill is that they um, have to give each transaction that they are monitoring a unique number. So within the bill, it has been proposed to link that to the personal identification number, which is quite sensitive uh, data. And that means that banks are actually obtaining more personal data uh, from their clients, but also um, not only for certain transactions, but actually a lot more transactions as the requirements currently are. Which I have my questions, question marks with, because uh, within the GDPR we know uh, you are not allowed to process more da- data than necessary. Uh, you have to uh, have a legal base in order to process this data. You need to have some kind of purpose why you are processing this data. So I'm very curious on what legal basis these banks are possibly uh, processing this much data more than necessary, if I hear you correctly, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, that was exactly one of the points of the Dutch Data Protection Authority in their response to this legislative bill. Um, at least within the uh, legislative bill, it is mentioned that there are certain additional requirements when it comes to obtaining this uh, this extra personal data. But also, um, they should only use this data, of course, for the specific purpose. And that's only matching a transaction with a specific person. And yeah, that also means that they have to undertake additional safeguards within the legislative bill. It was also um, discussed that, for example, the data should be pseudonymized and encrypted and make sure that only the persons actually having, who actually need to have access to this data can have access and no more. At Kimberley, now five years later, what do you think was the most impressive court case you saw regarding uh, GDPR? Mm, well, what I think is an interesting court case or the court cases, I think, of course, data subjects are allowed to claim damages uh, based on the GDPR. And there have been several court cases uh, where the court decided that the data subject was uh, well, had the right to receive those damages. They were not that high. Uh, the compensation they would be uh, getting, it was about 100 euros to 250 euros or 500 euros. 
Um, and the question is and was uh, whether if the GDPR, if an infringement of the GDPR has taken place, whether a data subject always has a right to claim damages. And it's interesting that actually this month, uh, the 4th of May, the European Court of Justice decided that it's not always if the GDPR has been infringed that the data subject has a right uh, for financial compensation. It also set out that or stipulated that local member states can decide how it's decided when a data subject has a right for uh, financial damages. But it's so it's not always the case if an infringement takes place, a data subject has a right for financial compensation. And I think this uh, is good news for the organizations. Yeah, it, it, it's some kind of carte blanche for the companies. They can go a little across the line little put uh, living on the edge let's put it that way uh, process a little bit more than the law uh, states and in the end uh, they will still have at least they have the the chance not being fined for it that's how i read it well i think it depends on how a member state or the courts will be deciding when a data subject has a right for financial compensation Um, and that's not clear yet. So I think it depends how this will be implemented. After five years, I have to say, like, it has become some kind of normal, all these court cases, all these infringements, all these uh, enforcement activities. I couldn't pick one, uh, I should say. But what I find intriguing and interesting is the GDPR actually came out of the blue, let's put it that way, and it, it is a regulation which now almost every company knows what it is and what it does. And I didn't expect that back in the days. It started with lots of D-Day, uh, 25th of May kind of marketing from many consultancy offices and law offices. And I thought like, ah, that will fly away within a few months. But I still notice, even in our office, if we don't lock our laptop, you have to, you get a fine. <laughs> from <laughs> you have to bake a pie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, I, I. It made people aware. Um, yeah. And even in the smallest areas, like our office, we have to uh, give the pot five euros every time someone leaves a laptop open. And what do you do with the five euros? Well, we're going to spend it, uh, I think, in within two weeks on a on a very nice lunch altogether. Yeah, so. Mm, nice. So these these small actions make people aware, uh, and I think that is the most important case for the GDPR. And I think uh, it has accomplished uh, its mission. Yeah, because of the enforcement, you mean that there have been actually. Exactly. I find. But exactly. I also think that what I already mentioned uh, a few minutes ago uh, is that that first I think companies were thinking, okay, this is a one-time uh, project. We will introduce all the privacy statements, the standard documentation, but that it's, that it's actually an ongoing process. I mean, every business thinks of new services and products they want to introduce and always it's necessary to check whether it's privacy compliant. But I also think... Uh, so it's ongoing, so it, it will always, organizations will always be busy with privacy compliance. It's not a one-time thing. But I also think that customers uh, became more aware, especially also in the in the COVID period, uh, where on the one hand, people were afraid of losing their jobs or their business uh, or becoming ill. But on the other hand, um, processing personal data was a solution to this or could be a solution to this with the past Corona passport or the Corona app. So people started to see, okay, it is there is a very 
good purpose to process my personal data and I'm afraid of COVID, but I'm also afraid to lose my privacy. And I think that created a lot of privacy awareness for people um, and that also makes that organizations want to be privacy-proof because their clients and their customers want them to be privacy-proof. Yeah, yeah, and it does not stop, uh, I think, with creating policies and procedures. Uh, as you already mentioned, the challenge that we have within the office uh, when it comes to locking screens, it, it starts with the behavior of your own employees and embedding that within the company and make sure that everybody is aware um, why do we want to be compliant, but also see the importance and, and start with that proper training, but also the awareness of, of yeah, of your own employees, uh, what can happen if you do not lock your screen when it's not in the office, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I fully agree. I have nothing to add, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I slowly want to uh, move towards the end. I have uh, two questions. I think Nikki also has a question. Uh, yes, turning uh, back to you as you are our technology uh. expert. Um, in addition to the GDPR, how do you think that companies are dealing with the challenges of complying with various law and technology topics across different countries? That's an interesting question. Uh, I should have known that question. <laughs> uh, well, um, what we are seeing is this uh, flood of uh, this wave of new uh, legislation from Brussels, um, directives, regulations. Um, they just keep coming. And I think um, GDPR was a seed who made this possible. Uh, what we see now is uh, many new laws coming up regarding to um, uh, platforms, the Digital Markets Act, the Digital Services Act, um, many new laws uh, relating to data. Um, I think Kimberly can also tell more about that. We have seen the Data Governance Act, the Data Act, uh, the Non-Personal Data uh, Directive or I was, I'm not sure, but we are seeing more and more technology-related uh, legislation coming up. Of course, uh, that's that's uh, how people know Brussels. It's a machine which produces laws, many laws, um, but also with the latest technological advancements, um, new emerging technologies, with, uh, for instance, crypto. Um, last week, uh, the Mika regulation... Uh, Uh, got uh, finalized and got published. Uh, We are heading towards an AI act, but also an AI liability directive. So they just keep on going and going. Mm. Um, So I I can think about, like, imagine me, I'm doing this daily, but I can't keep up. And um, I can understand that companies, international companies have the same uh, problems because it's so much. I'm not sure, Kimberly, do you also see this in your own uh, practice? Yeah, I think the first question is, is what what is being introduced and what does this mean for my organization? Is it applicable to my organization? Um, and I think it's not only, I mean, you mentioned Brussels as a machine, but I think there are actually a lot of machines active all around the world. And that's uh, what I mean, that uh, a lot of new data protection laws and other kinds of laws are introduced all over the world. So it's not only within the EU that you need to comply with a lot of rules with respect to the processing of personal data or using data or new technologies. It's actually all around the world. And I think a lot of companies are 
active in the online environment or also focus on uh, countries outside of the EU. So they also need to be aware of the data protection laws being introduced in Brazil, in China, in Indonesia, in Australia, it's in Canada, in Turkey. It's, a, it's actually everywhere. And uh, the funny thing is that those new data protection laws are actually very similar to the GDPR. And first, organizations thought, oh, that's... That's easy. We already have uh, implemented the GDPR, so we will be fine. But actually, it makes it very complicated because it's slightly different. We have the same definitions in a lot of uh, rules, but they are slightly different. And for example, the cookie banners is a good example. It's hard to find a 100% compliant cookie banner that is compliant with respect to all the guidance published in the EU. But if you realize that also the Brazilian supervisory authority and the Canadian supervisory authority and the Turkish supervisory authorities have published guidelines with respect to the cookie banners, how are organizations able to keep track of all these guidelines and be be able to implement all these requirements? So I think this is a very big challenge for any organization that is active worldwide. I'm seeing the exact same thing with uh, cyber legislation. Uh, when I look at the NIST 2 directive, which is published recently to the, the DORA, the Digital Operational Resilience Act, uh, but also the new Cyber Resilience Act. Like you said, every country, uh, every continent has its own uh, rules regarding the governance of these uh, uh, technological developments or uh, topics which are becoming more and more important. Um, so I, I understand the struggle of the companies because it is it is quite hard to mimic uh, in all countries the same rules and same procedures for every company. Um, but I think that's how the world works. Yeah, I don't know. To be honest. I think it's a risk. Because uh, I think why it's do you think it's a risk? Yeah, because I think it's important to think about cybersecurity, to have rules regarding cybersecurity and to have rules on how companies should be processing personal data. But I think a risk of so many rules is overcomplicating it uh, so that companies are only worrying about, okay, what are the rules, first of all? Uh, and then how are we able to are we able to be compliant everywhere at the same time? And I think that takes it's important. I'm not saying that companies should not be doing this. However, I think it's it, companies uh, lose focus uh, and they should be focusing on where are the highest privacy risks in my organization and how am I ensuring that we are uh, securely processing data and personal data instead of only focusing on these very detailed rules that are so complicated and sometimes so fake. Uh, I think that's sometimes a waste of money and time. I totally agree. Um, Practical guidance is needed there. Exactly. Especially for the large international active organizations with exposure in a lot of countries. Overcompliance is a thing we... Uh, we don't want within our company, I think also within your uh, lawyer's office. Uh, but we see it exactly. We see a, a lot of questions about these compliance-related or risk-related uh, topics. Um, but that's not the way around. I think um, logic, think logically, um, try to 
pinpoint or assess at least whether what, what you said the highest risks are when you process data uh, what governance related uh, implementation or mitigation risks did I take in advance uh, when a cyber incident occurs because sooner or later there will be some kind of cyber incident within your company so think logically I would say to every company um, and prioritize uh, the most important topics first I have one more question to both of you what steps can organizations take to ensure ongoing compliance uh, with the GDPR and other data protection regulations? Let's start with Kimberly. In my opinion, um, training and awareness is the most important thing. I think a lot of organizations now have a dedicated person, a DPO, a data protection officer, or a privacy officer, or another dedicated person, or even a dedicated team that is aware of privacy and knows the rules and knows how to comply with it. But of course, those people and these teams cannot do it by themselves. They need people in the organizations that actually realize when a risk may occur, when uh, a product uh, should be adjusted to be more privacy compliant. So I think uh, creating more awareness and training, I think... It takes a lot of time for these people and these teams to provide these trainings, awareness to everyone in a company. But I think in the end, it saves them a lot of time because you can have a beautiful data protection, uh, data breach procedure. But if people don't know where to find it or that what a data breach is or even what is personal data, then they will not notify you when something has happened. Um, and if uh, business and development is creating new products and services and at the end they ask the privacy team, please, can you check this? We want to go live next week. Uh, and they get a no and they get frustrated and they think, oh, the privacy officer never wants to approve our products. Uh, I think if they are more privacy aware, they will start developing uh, products and services that are more privacy friendly. Uh, so more privacy by design. So I think training and awareness is one of the most important topics. So appropriate technical and organizational measures as mentioned in the GDPR. Okay, clear. And Nikki? Yeah, I fully agree. I think it indeed starts with training and awareness. And of course, you should have well-designed policies and procedures um, to map out what is required and how should you handle in certain situations and incorporate that within the governance of your organization. Uh, but it all starts with your employees because you can have beautiful design policies, but if nobody knows where to find them and nobody knows what's actually the content and how should they handle, what's the use of your policy then? then it's just a written tiger, so to speak. What I find obvious is that companies have to look in their own database and see what kind of data they all have. Because sometimes you uh, walk into a company and you look into their uh, database and there is data of years and years of age who have to be deleted for years ago, but it's still swinging around. Yeah. Um, so I think that is also a very easy and important step to take. Just have a look in your database, see what data and documents you have, and delete them if you don't need them. Um, that would be my advice, actually, to all companies. Yeah, I agree. And making people aware can uh, already start with uh, baking a pie and bring it to the office if you do not look your screen. So. <laughs> <laughs> These are nice words to close this conversation. I want to thank Kimberly for coming here. 
Thank you. And Nikki, thank you very much. Thanks. And for the listeners, thank you for listening and hope to see you back soon. <laughs> <laughs>